So guys, one of the best events of the year is coming up. I'm talking about HubSpot's annual Inbound Conference in Boston. Inbound is the event of the year for business leaders working in marketing, sales, customer service, and operations, and much more. You can discover all the latest must-know trends and tactics that you can actually put into place to scale your business in a sustainable way. And I think you'll love it. So make sure you mark your calendars for September 5th through 8th, 2023. You'll be able to catch talks from amazing talent like Yvette Noel Shore. Yes, the Yvette, Beyonce's advisor and publicist, plus Guy Raz, Morgan DeBond, and so much more with multiple stages featuring industry experts and tracks from sales strategy to AI and innovation. You'll walk away with practical tips that you can put into action right away. Plus, you'll connect with other leaders from some of the most exciting and innovative companies in the world. This year is going to be unforgettable. So tickets are selling out fast. Head over to inbound.com to get yours today. You're listening to Side Hustle Pro, the podcast that teaches you to build and grow your side hustle from passion project to profitable business. And I'm your host, Nikayla Matthews-Okome. So let's get started. Hey friends, hey, welcome, welcome back to the show. It's Nikayla here, and today I'm back with another episode. Today in the guest chair, I have Kaylin Johnson Chandler, who is the founder and creative force behind the signature brand, Effie's Paper, Stationery, and Whatnot. Following a 10-year legal career as an environmental transactional lawyer, Kaylin returned to her first love, fashion, in 2007. In 2007, she launched her first side hustle into business called Style by Kaylin Johnson, a style consultancy focused on personal branding for men and women in the corporate arena. Her client roster consisted of television news anchors, attorneys, physicians, and other professionals. Now, as a self-taught graduate, Graphic designer, she's extended her intrinsic fashion sense into a distinct lifestyle brand focusing on desk accessories and travel products named after her grandmother, Mrs. Effie Hayes, that features her signature design aesthetic of bright colors, bold designs, and witty remarks. Although named after Kaylin's grandmother, Effie's Paper is not your grandmother's stationery company. The goal is simple, create lifestyle products that can coexist with today's technology. Effie's Paper offers its online customers and wholesale accounts an on-trend curated selection of stylish desks, stationery, travel, and gift accessories. The products reflect Kaylin's belief that the future is female and is being shaped by the power of Black girl magic. You can find Effie's Paper's motivational coffee mugs, cheeky notebooks, cool pouches, and apparel online at effiespaper.com and in 400 plus independent retailers across the US, Canada, and Haiti. And in the winter of 2022, Effie's Paper created a small exclusive collection for Walmart that was sold in 200 select stores. And in today's episode, you'll hear all about her journey from law to fashion and entrepreneurship and everything in between. Let's get right into it. Welcome officially to the Side Hustle Pro guest chair. Thank you so much for being here. I know you're in between New York and Miami, so thank you for making the time in your busy schedule. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Of course. I, you know, I followed you on Instagram for so long. I can't believe I haven't 
had you in the guest chair before. And as I was reading your bio, I, you know, was just so impressed because you've lived many lives, right? So tell us, you started out as an attorney. What initially led you to pursue a career in law? Oh, wow. That's a good question. Um, before going to law school, I went to graduate school. Uh, I went to policy school because I wanted to work in the world of education policy and do what I could to ensure there was more parity within our educational system. And while I was in policy school, I realized that the laws were really what needed to be focused on. And so I decided that perhaps I should go to law school so that I could truly become an incisive policymaker. Went to law school, had a lot of debt and thought, well, before I do this policy thing, maybe what I should do is work at a law firm and really learn the practice of law and then branch out. And so that's how I ended up at law school and ultimately at a big law firm as a practicing lawyer. Yeah. So you did big law for all 10 years of your official legal career? Yeah, I did big law for a little over 11 years. What was that like? I hear a lot of people talk about how hard it is to manage and that you essentially just work so many hours. What was the experience like for you? It's so many things and you're just, you're taking me back. It's almost like another lifetime. Yeah. You know, the thing about working at a big law firm is you have a ton of resources. Mm -hmm. You work around really smart individuals. You work on cases and deals that are on the front page of the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. And, you know, so there's, there's a sexy element to it. There's the money that's great, but it's work. And when I say work, I mean, it's work. You know, you might not start until 10 o'clock, but that's because you might've been at work or, and, and whether you were physically in your office or at home, you might've been working until two or three in the morning. And depending on the matter, that could happen for weeks on end, like through the weekend and Monday through Friday. And it's just, it it is a grind. It can be a grind. It's not always a grind, but it can be a grind. Is it satisfactory when the deal closes and the client is happy? Yes, of course. Are you exhausted? Yes. But you learn a lot. It's fast paced. It, It can be exciting. But as in many corporate arenas, there is and was a glass ceiling. And I certainly hit that and had to make a decision about what I wanted to do with myself. And that's when I started thinking about segueing out. As you're speaking, you guys, and make sure to check out this episode on YouTube. It's funny, I almost see in your face, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's almost like these flashbacks. It's almost like I'm triggering something, <laughs> which I'm so sorry. <laughs> You know, it's just, it's just, it's, it's, it was a, it was fraught with emotion for me. You know, you, you go to law school, which is a commitment. It's an expensive commitment. You gain this particularized type of knowledge. You start working in one of these institutions and you build up a client base and you have friends at work and in, in, it, it is all encompassing. It's a kind of career that unless someone is 
in it or has been in it, it's really hard to explain what the experience is like because it becomes who you are and vice versa. And divorcing yourself of that, you know, removing yourself from that, it it takes a little while to let go and let go of the title and the accolades. I mean, when I decided to leave the practice of law, my father looked at me and said, well, what am I going to tell people you do? I mean, are you like, I have your business card in my wallet and some people can know, you know, and it was, so it wasn't just me who was stepping away. It also had whether, you know, necessary or not. It also had ramifications for those who were around me. And, you know, my parents invested a lot in, in me and my education. And for me to say, I'm not going to do this anymore. And it, it wasn't like I had done it for three years. I'd done it for a very long time. Right. And to walk away and not quite know what I was going to do was scary to them. And at the time, it, it was scary to me as well. Like, let's be clear. It was not a decision yeah. I made lightly. But at the time, I couldn't really give them any comfort because I was trying to get comfort figure myself, figure out like, who am I and what does this mean? And I'm more than just a lawyer, but so (laughs) I hear you. It's an experience I am forever grateful Mm -hmm. to have had because I would not have been able to start this business and think about this business in the way that I do had I not practiced law at a very high level. Oh, yes. And you touch on that important point of it's so hard when you decide to leave a role that you've become accustomed to, that you've done for so long and decide to do something else. And the something else is not guaranteed. It's hard for you because you're constantly asked to explain and comfort Mm -hmm. and reassure other people that you'll be okay. And you don't know if you'll be okay, but you know you're comfortable with testing that and finding that out. But other people, their questions, that is the part that we're not often ready for because then it's constantly on our mind. It's constantly being put in front of us like a microphone. What are you going to do? What are you going to (laughs) do? Exactly right. So when you stepped out, had you already launched Style or were you putting the pieces of that business together? And Style, by the way, was your style consultancy. Correct. So I was doing that on the side. It was my side hustle. And I had a couple of clients. So, but it was like a fun thing. You know, I I didn't think that it was going to turn into a real job (laughs) or a business, if you will. Um, But a friend of mine said to me, look, why don't you get some business cards made so that the next time someone says to you, oh, I love that dress or I just like your style, you can say, oh, thank you. Actually, this is what I do for a living. Here's my card. If you're interested, you know, please check me out. And so that's literally what I did. And that was a great way for me to ease into the idea of becoming an entrepreneur. So when I left the law firm, I gave myself probably about four months to just do nothing Mm -hmm. and decompress and, you know, get my elevator pitch together with respect to what it was I was telling people I did. And, and, and I had to figure out what that story was going to be and, and how it was going to work for me. 
And then when I did decide to really move forward with the styling, I was lucky. I had a good friend who was also a lawyer trying to figure out what his segue was going to be. He had been on the Bachelorette. He was the first African-American guy on The Bachelorette. Oh, cool. And really attractive guy, smart, you know, all the things, but not a great dresser. (laughs) And I said to him as I was making my segue, and, and he was thinking he wanted to become some sort of talking head like a news sort of personality. Mm-hmm. I said to him, look, this is what I'm thinking I'd like, I'd like to do. Let me help you. And let me just let be my test case and let's see what happens. And he was, and then he got brought on by CNN. And CNN liked the way that he was dressed for interviews and you know other small gigs that he had done. And he said, well, this is my stylist. You should hire her. And they did actually hire me not only to work for him or work with him, but with some of their other on-air talent. And so that's how my styling business really began to move forward. And what was the cost to kind of start it up? You were working from your apartment, right? So I'm assuming low overhead. What kind of investments did you have to make? Do you have to buy the clothes, return the clothes? Um, What was that process like? Well, this was like long before, now I'm dating myself, but this was long (laughs) before Instagram and blogging, you know, became what it has become. So my overhead costs were very low. I had a website built, business cards, some promo cards, that kind of thing. But that was really it. People paid me to help them get dressed. So I then would build relationships with different stores and boutiques. I would pre-shop. And we'd have a dressing room set aside. We'd come in, they'd try on the clothes, figure out what worked, figure out what need to be tailored. They would purchase and then we'd go on to the next thing. So it was relatively simple and, and not expensive for me to start. What was the day in the life at that point? Were you, while you had one client still stressing over, okay, I need to make sure I have it this many clients, you know, this year to make this amount. How was that? You know, um, I wasn't that stressed about it because it was just something I was trying out. Mm -hmm. Um, Let me back up and say the reason I started my styling business is because I was always the friend or family member that people came to and said, hey, I'm going to this event or "I I just need help. Can you go shopping with me? Or girl, I'm in the dressing room. Can you like just take 10 minutes and help me? I'm going to send you some pictures. So, I mean, it was just something I had always done. And when I formalized it, clients just sort of came because my network would let people know that this was something I was doing formally. My calling card or or my my promo card, I guess, was myself. People saw that I was well-dressed. I had worked in one of these ivory institutions. I understood what it was they needed to do to be appropriate for their workplaces. So I, I, I probably had at any given time, any month, I was probably working with three to four different clients. And because I was segueing out of something that had been so all encompassing, I wanted to just take it easy for a minute. I, I was I didn't need to have all the clients. I didn't need I didn't want to work with celebrities and that kind of thing. I really just wanted to 
be a normal person, if you will. <laughs> and, you know, be able to meet my friends for drinks after work and have a life. <laughs> just, yeah, have a life, if you will. So I, I had quite a bit of money saved up from practicing. So I just wasn't worried with respect to that business about how am I going to make money? It was okay. really more about letting go of the intense practice of law and finding a new middle ground. Yes. There are a few things that you said that we have to pause and highlight for a moment. One, you said you weren't stressed because you were trying something out. To be able to have that mindset is so powerful. We forget sometimes that one, we have a certain level of control here, right? And we can control how we approach and think about what we're doing next. If you just allow yourself to try and respect that this is a process, this trying is a process. So I'm not going to stress myself about the result because I'm trying something new. I know that I'm starting from scratch. It's going to look different than my story, 10-year career, and what I was doing before. And then the second mm -hmm. thing, of course, you talked about the savings part. Now, I know not everyone has the same amount of savings or not everyone was earning a big law salary. However, anything that you can save for your expenses and for as long as possible to cover as long as possible helps to take some of that stress off so you can think clearly. And I know you guys who listen all the time are Absolutely. like, I'm a broken record because <laughs> I'm saying this, but <laughs> it's so true. Entrepreneurs, side hustlers, we need space to have clarity, to think through our next thing. For you, Kaylin, you started doing something that I'm assuming you enjoyed, but it wasn't your final destination as far as entrepreneurship. So tell us about that process of going from something that's working, you're getting great clientele, but then you get this idea to start something else. Well, you know, what I learned as a fashion stylist for busy professionals was that it was kind of a twofold thing for me. Having come from a big law firm, the service that I knew to provide was a very high touch service. And that can be draining. The other part of it was as much as I love fashion and style, I didn't love helping people get dressed. I, I, I just didn't. And what I didn't love, or what, and I didn't even know this until I was in it, is that however big or small we happen to be, we all have body conscious issues. And much of my job became getting people comfortable with their shapes and sizes. And it was much more, I, I, I played the role of a, a psychiatrist or <laughs> a, a therapist. Wow. Much more, much I more so think about that element, than, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, again, I didn't know to think about it, but mm -hmm. you know, I, I mean, we all do it when you're yeah. in the dressing room or you're getting ready to go to something, you know, you're in the mirror, like, well, am I comfortable? Do I feel good? I'm not mm -hmm. sure mm -hmm. if you're paying someone to help you get dressed you're asking them those questions and you're looking to them for reassurance. I mean, and, and when I was styling, I did end up hiring a stylist because I had some stuff I had to do and I just didn't have time. And I found myself doing the exact same things that my clients were doing. So mm -hmm. for me, what I learned is I didn't think I, it just wasn't what I wanted to do long-term. And yes. I had an opportunity to 
stepped a little ways back from the business. I had gotten engaged and we decided that we were going to have a short engagement. Paper stationery had always been important to me my whole life. I was one of those girls who knew exactly what my wedding invitation was going to look like. And, you know, I I had it all in my head. So I began planning our wedding and then I got invited to another wedding. And it was this friend of ours who was Kenyan and Southeast Asian and her invitations were like nothing I had ever seen in my life before. I mean, it just, wow. it, it, it blew my mind. I was like, oh my God, I think I want something like this. And yeah. so as we began to plan our wedding, I ended up working with her uh, invitation designer. Mm-hmm. I had something in my head, different from what I had as a girl, but I had something in my head about what I wanted. We were having a destination wedding and I had to pull from my head to she and her team so that they could create my vision. So I had to art direct. I had never done that before. And after going through that process, it was sort of like, wow, maybe I should have a stationary company. And I, you know, put it out there and then went on my merry way, (laughs) got married, came back Mm -hmm. from our honeymoon, got back to business, the styling business, Mm -hmm. and was really like, okay, this isn't it. (laughs) But I don't know what is. A couple months later, (laughs) I joined a national organization Mm -hmm. and I received a lot of gifts. And um, and that's part of the induction process. Mm -hmm. My mother flew in, my best friend flew in, we go to this induction. I come home with like two or three of those large LL Bean tote bags filled with stuff. We sit down in our living room. I am going through things and a lot of it was paper goods. Mm. And my husband walked in and just kind of looked at everything, picked up a set of stationery and said, you could do this so much better. Ooh. This is not great. And then walked out. <laughs> And, you know, the three of us kind of laughed because the, the stuff just wasn't that interesting. A uh-huh. couple days later, I was sitting at my desk writing thank you notes on yeah. some of this stationery I had just received. But also I had my wedding stationery. I yeah. had some other stationery. I was a big, continue to be a uh, personalized stationery person. Mm-hmm. And as I was writing these notes, and I, I literally had all the stationery on my desk, the only stationery I loved was our wedding stationery. And that was because I had art directed it. And it was literally like, it came from my heart. And in that moment, I just, I had my aha. And I was like, you know what? I need to start a stationery company. Wow. And Todd's right. I can do this better. I don't know how, I don't know anything about these graphic design programs. Mm -hmm. I just know what I like. I know I have a sense of style that is appealing to other people. And I can translate this to stationary. Ooh, and so love that I, the name came to me immediately. My grandmother fostered my love of stationary and all things paper related. She worked for a greeting card company when I was a little girl and my sister and I had a cabinet in their family room filled with stationery and note cards. So penmanship was important to my grandmother. 
writing notes. You know, I, I know how to make a bow from scratch. All of that kind of stuff I learned as a very young child. And it just kind of stuck with me and became part of my DNA. So in, in that moment, I was like, I'm going to call it Effie's Paper after my grandmother. Mm-hmm. I created the, the initial logo in a Word document on my computer. I printed it out and I went down the street to the local printer who had helped me with some of our uh, wedding collateral. And I said to him, look, I have this idea. Mm-hmm. Can you help me? And he said, I'm the layout guy. Like I'm not <laughs> a graphic design person. I said, that's okay. I, I said, I know what I want to do. I just need you to help me. Cause I don't know how to use these. I don't even have these programs, much less how to use them. Yep. So he helped me and I created about 10 different stationary designs for this national organization. Okay. And, and I wanted to do it immediately because I was getting ready to go to the national convention. So I just joined and then the national convention was going to be like three or four weeks away. Mm-hmm. And it just happened to be in my hometown. My mother's chapter was the host and all of my childhood girlfriends were going to be there. Plus their moms who I had grown up with. Mm-hmm. So I go to this convention and I've got just a little white shopping bag with my stationary sets. And as I am bumping into people that I've not seen, you know, 10, 15 years, Hey girl, you know how, what's going on? Where do you live now? You know, what are you up to? I finally had a story and my story was doing really good. I live in New York. I just got married. Oh, and I started a stationary company. Do you want to see? And I would pull out my stuff and my friends and family and their friends were like, oh, wow, I like this. How much can I buy some? And I sold out at that convention and that gave me my proof of concept and let me know. And and at the time, I didn't know what proof of concept was. (laughs) It let me know that I was on to something and that if I sat down and figured it out, maybe this was something that would have some legs and could move forward. I am just in love with this story because many reasons, but um, something you said <laughs> it just made me kind of chuckle when you talked about coming back from, I think it was your honeymoon, going back into the styling business. And and mind you, this was a side hustle that you started. So it's so funny when our side hustles become our jobs and we're like, this is not it. So it is possible to work for yourself <laughs> and still be like, all right, this is not it. Okay. It's another job yeah. I got myself into. Let me, let me rejigger. <laughs> let me figure out what I really want to be doing. So that's perfectly normal. And it's okay, you guys. You know, I think that this this concept of reinvention and understanding that your journey has stages and chapters is something we should all get comfortable with. So now mm-hmm. we're in the chapter of starting Effie's paper. What were the first steps you took to get started? You know, I didn't know anything. I didn't know what I didn't know. But what I, I quickly realized, so my first steps were I came back from that convention and knew that I needed to get some stuff designed so that I could go back to these people. And I had the foresight to collect email addresses. 
while I was there. So I, I wanted to strike while the iron was hot. Very smart. So initially I hired someone and again, art directed her. Mm-hmm. And, you know, by the fall, I had a website, I had a collection, I had a little launch, if you will. <laughs> and then as that began to move forward, I took the back steps and did, you know, I incorporated and I hired a coach to help me with graphic design. And then I probably took at least a month and a half where I sat down at my computer every day Mm -hmm. at like 10 a.m. until 5 p.m. And I taught myself how to use Adobe Illustrator because I realized that I could keep hiring people, I could keep farming out, I could keep art directing. But one of the young ladies I hired said, look, you're creative. Mm -hmm. Yes, I have gone to school and yes, I have a degree in this, but it's not rocket science and you can figure it out. And what you have is the luxury of time. That resonated with me. And I thought, you know what? I, the one thing I know how to do is be disciplined. So let me see if I can teach myself. And, and I did, and I, I, I learned enough to become dangerous. Uh And then (laughs) I generally had interns and, you know, some friends where if I got stuck with something, Mm -hmm. somebody could, you know, walk me through or, you know, YouTube is great. You can learn all kinds of stuff on YouTube universe. Yes, indeed. So my initial steps were really teaching myself to become a graphic designer and learning all facets of the business. Quite frankly, I had read a book called The E-Myth by Michael Gerber, which I highly recommend. And it Mm -hmm. talks, are you familiar with it? It talks about- Yeah, that's a popular one here on Styles of Pro. Okay. So you all know it well then. If you've heard about it and you haven't picked it up, you should pick it up Mm -hmm. because- he advises that in order to understand the business that you are starting, you need to work in all aspects of it. You need to do that one because you just need to understand, but two, probably because you cannot afford to hire anybody to do anything else. (laughs) But once you understand the different components, you can hand it off those components off the ones that you don't enjoy or that don't aren't worth your time so that, you can bring and bring other people in, but you need to understand what it is you're asking other people to do. And that was the beginning. That's what I did to get started. What did it cost from an investment standpoint? Well, I didn't have very many overcosts. Mm-hmm. I was working out of my apartment. I didn't have any inventory. The only inventory I really had appreciably were colored envelopes because initially I was doing only personalized stationery. Okay. And so as orders came in, I would do the customization. We had like 10 different designs. I would do the customization on the particular design and then it would be sent to print. So I didn't have stationery as inventory. So my my initial costs were really formation costs, having a website built, taking some courses to get myself up to speed. And then the actual process of producing this. Correct. Right. So people were placing orders for stationery on your website and you were fulfilling those. They wanted your custom, personal, you know, aesthetic on their stationery. Correct. 
So my goal was just not to lose money. Yes, of course, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so how, how long did it take you to expand into products? Well, it took a couple of years. One, because again, I was still kind of easing out of the practice of law. And when I decided, okay, you know what? This has some legs. I can make a go of this. I really hunkered down. And I also, in addition to having the stationary products, I was intentional when I named the company. I named it Effie's Paper Stationery and Whatnot because I knew at some point I'd want to add the whatnots in. Mm -hmm. So that was about three or four years, about three years in, I would say. But I was still focused primarily on the stationery. I, I felt like when I when I went into all of this, I was like, oh, I'm going to have this widget that sells itself online. And I had an antiquated widget, so <laughs> I needed to I needed to do a pivot and really because my my thought process was okay. So now I've started this business; it seems to have some legs. I'm enjoying this. I'm enjoying learning all of the things that I'm learning. But people are now emailing and DMing, and there's all of this social media stuff. So uh-huh. folks aren't really writing in the way that they had been. And if I was honest with myself, they hadn't been writing all that much anyway. (laughs) So my pivot was if I want this business to scale, Mm -hmm. I need to think about what it is that people will buy that kind of falls under the umbrella of what I offer. And I just started to think about, well, what are the things that I buy? What are the things that I enjoy? And what are the things that Uh, And of those things that relate to what it is that I'm doing here. And so that's Mm -hmm. when I really began to add in the desk and lifestyle accessories. Mm -hmm. So we started off with notebooks and coffee mugs and just sort of pushed forward and began to fill in as, as products were received and took the advice uh, Mm -hmm. from others in the industry. But really also talked with our customers to get a sense of what they wanted to see. Because at the time, there were very few people who looked like me making inroads in this industry. And I wanted to be mindful of that. And I wanted to provide product that really spoke to us and me. Mm -hmm. And I'm definitely our test case girl. But I I really wanted to make certain that we were providing products that would, could empower black and brown women. And very smart that you were talking to your actual customers. So you're getting feedback from the people who are actually paying money and giving you money for the products that you're coming up with. The Shine Online, hosted by Natasha Samuel, is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. Natasha interviews the brightest entrepreneurs she knows to bring you no-fluff advice. So honest discussions about the mental health and lifestyle aspect of entrepreneurship and actionable strategies and success stories of those who've mastered the art of shining online. Now, I recently checked out her episode called The Anatomy of a Great In it, Natasha breaks down tips to master short and long form content. And I'm always trying to optimize and make my social media videos as engaging and impactful as possible while also getting people to take action. So this episode was definitely helpful. And I think you guys will love it as well. Listen to The Shine Online wherever you get your podcasts. 
point did you start to carry inventory and how did you go about that? (laughs) Well, when we brought in notebooks and coffee mugs, so this is now probably four, four and a half years in. That's when we had inventory. We were still in my apartment Mm -hmm. and we had a, a basement storage unit. And so that quickly became Effie's paper domain. And I don't know where the Chandler stuff went, but it kind of got, it got pushed out. Um, And everything was either in my living room or in our basement. And because I had a large enough space in my basement, I was very lucky because in New York, this isn't always the norm, but because we had a large enough space, Although we were working out of my home, and at this point, I had a couple of interns, I had an admin, everybody knew at the end of the day, everything had to be put away downstairs in the basement so that my house still looked like my house. (laughs) And, you know, and also because when you're starting, you don't, you you just don't know, you don't know what people are going to buy, you don't know how things are going to go. I was okay with paying more money for smaller amounts of inventory rather than having thousands of pieces of something and not knowing if it was going to sell and where I was going to store it and how all of that was going to work. So I I came from the school of thought of let's start small. Let me find small run Mm -hmm. printers and vendors and let's build accordingly. So if you looked in this basement unit and didn't know what, where to find things, didn't know how to navigate it, it looked like a hot mess, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> but it worked. It worked for a while. Mm-hmm. How did you find these small run printers and manufacturers? Were these U.S. based or were you still going overseas and then having them ship those smaller runs? No, I was doing everything in the U.S., and okay. I just learned to make Google my best friend. And, mm-hmm. and you know, if you are determined to do something, you can find it on the internet because yep. it, it does exist. And so I did research and I found folks and I made relationships. And I was, I was lucky when I first started, I belonged to an organization called Ladies Who Launch. And yes. the idea behind Ladies Who Launch, or part of the idea behind Ladies Who Launch, is to connect women with similar businesses to one another and share Mm -hmm. information. And there was a woman who was far ahead of me in terms of owning a stationary business. I took her out to lunch and she said, for what you're doing, you need a small run printer. The company I used in the past that you should use is called Stationary Headquarters. And so that's who I started using initially. And they um, do the printing for a lot of small stationary businesses around the U.S. And so that was where I started. And then as I learned and talked and researched, I found other vendors because not everybody prints the same sorts of things. It wasn't until maybe 2017, 2018 Mm -hmm. that I really started producing overseas. Thank you for that really, really clutch tip. I'm sure that will help someone. So it seems like even as you were growing and scaling, there was still a bit of, uh, I'm trying this out, I'm testing this out (laughs) kind of mentality. (laughs) When did you really take this seriously and say, this is my business? This is 
it? Well, that's a fair assessment because that's exactly what it was. And it wasn't (laughs) until it was summer 2017, August 2017. Mm -hmm. My admin, who is now my director of operations, said to me, I really think we could move out of your living room. And I said, "Mm, really? (laughs) I love that. (laughs) And she said, Kaylin, I mean, I'm running the numbers and I I think we could do this. And I, and in the bubble in my head, I didn't vocalize this, but the bubble in my head was, yeah, that's a commitment and that costs money. And I got to be able to pay you and the other people and the inventory And, you know, all the other stuff. And now you want to add rent and you want to add New York rent on. So, I mean, I was really like, "Mm, yeah, I'm not sure about that. And we left it at that. And she came back to me. That was in August. She came back to me end of September and said, so I want to bring this up again. And I was like, okay, that's great. And she said, and I have looked at a bunch of places in Brooklyn I've narrowed it down to three that I think you should check out. And at that point I was like, well, damn. Okay. She's right. right. You know, I was like, okay, she's right. Proactive employee. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) She's vested. I'm vested. Like, what am I waiting for? And it was fear. I mean, it was just, it was fear. Yeah. So I began to look at these spaces. I started talking to, some friends who were in real estate to see if I could find, you know, what kind of office space and what are, you know, what should I be paying all this kind of stuff? Well, and then let me be honest. The other thing that happened was as all of this is playing off, my husband and I decided that we were going to redo our kitchen that like November, December. And the person we hired to help out was like, well, do you want to wait till the top of the year? Because aren't we getting ready to head into your busy season? Like, I see this is your office right here. Like, you can't do this if we've got all these workmen in. So that was also Mm -hmm. what was pushing me. Anyway, I I talked to this girlfriend of mine. Okay. And she said, you know, I want to help you. And here's what I'd like to offer. I have a brownstone. And my parlor floor is currently empty. I'm getting, I'm, go- I'm planning to redo it January or February of next year, which was mm-hmm. going to be 2018. But right now it's empty. So my offer, I've wanted to support your business and I just, life has gotten in the way. I haven't. My offer is why don't you and your team move into my parlor floor for the fall and get through your busy season, deal with your renovation and then move into a space at the top of the year. And when she said it, I just burst into tears because it was really, it was again, this whole proof of concept, like, okay. So generous. So we can move out of the basement, move out of the apartment, move into Valencia's parlor floor. Let's see how the holiday season goes. Let's see what this is like. Like, what is the money gonna be like? Can I afford to do this? Like, is it all gonna work? And it was, the right way for me to ease into the next phase of the business. And so we were in her building from October through the end of January. And then beginning of February, we moved into office space and we just moved into larger spaces um, (laughs) since then. (laughs) 
Did you find that it unlocked a new level of either grind or just opportunity? <laughs> you know, now 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 you had like more hunger to pay rent. <laughs> so you were working differently. You were approaching the business differently. Did you find that? Oh, absolutely. Um, it, it, it opened up all sorts of doors, but for me personally, it was, okay, I'm doing this. Like I'm vested now. Like I gotta, I, I I'm taking, I'm taking this challenge on and I am going to do everything that I can to make it work. And so that meant I had to start thinking about the business differently. Like we were scaling, things were moving, but it really was then mm-hmm. where I was like, okay, so I wanted to have travel mugs, but I wanted that metallic lid. Like that, I just, that's mm-hmm. what I wanted. And those could not be produced in the US. And mm-hmm. so that's when I started finding overseas vendors. I started investing more in inventory. I started buying larger quantities of inventory. And I just started to think about things differently. That's also when we, I, my toe had been in wholesale, but like just kind of barely. I had done some trade mm-hmm. shows and did a little bit of wholesale. But up until that point, I had really been focused on direct-to-consumer from the e-commerce okay. standpoint. And when we moved into the office space, I decided that I really wanted to make part of our revenue come from wholesale, which was just a whole nother beast that I had to learn and conquer. But that was, it it made sense at that point. Tell us a little bit about wholesale. What does that look like in your industry? And, you know, how does it work? Well, I can only speak to how it works for us, but... um, Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you know, generally speaking, we sell our products wholesale to other small boutiques and um, stores. We have been very lucky to sell to some big boxes as well. And the thing about wholesale that is tricky is the wholesale client, customer, store, whatever you want to call them, is expecting to purchase your products for at least 50% off of what your retail price is. And so you have to make certain that your numbers are such that you can make money by selling your products wholesale, right? So if we're selling a set of six pencils on our website for $8, that means that the wholesale store is expecting to spend no more than $4 on that. Now, what you want to do, you want to get your numbers to the point, and this is all about volume at this point, where you're spending no more than $2 to produce and package that set of pencils. Mm. Ideally, you really want to be spending about 75 cents to a dollar so that you're making money when you sell it wholesale as well as when you sell it retail. And that just, it. It, it, it's all, it's all a numbers game. Numbers, volume. Wow. So, so intriguing. And I mean, how did you learn all this? Were you, I saw that you participated in programs like the Goldman Sachs 10,000 small business program. So as you're doing all this, I'm assuming you're having to learn at such a steep learning curve, how all of this works. The internet. <laughs> 
Um, the internet. <laughs> no, I. <laughs> they get all back to the, yes. <laughs> the internet has become my best friend. Oh yes. But um, when I started, there just weren't the amount of product-based businesses that there are today. Not not just in my space, but you know, candles and shea butter and. I mean, there are just so many now, and it just wasn't the case. So trying to understand how to run a products-based business, I mean, quite frankly, I was making it up a lot of the time. But, you know, like I said, committing to a lease mm-hmm. for office space in New York, having yes. employees that I needed to pay, lit a fire underneath me, and then... I was very lucky. I did get into the Goldman Sachs 10,000 business program. And that also helped to bolster my confidence and realize that I had something that had legs and I really could make it work. At that point in time, I sought out a business coach and I wanted a products-based business coach, which at the time were few and far between, Mm -hmm. but God helps fools and babies. And I was in the Goldman Sachs pro like I had just moved into this office space. I'm, you know, trying to manage these employees. I had gotten into the Goldman Sachs program, which is an intense three month thing. We had just finished the second holiday, our first holiday season in the office space. Uh And I was just like at my wits end. I knew I needed help. Like I knew I needed someone to just hold my hand and help me if nothing else, co-sign on what it was that I was doing. Yep. And I, I, in the middle of the night, found this woman, you know, I sent her an email. She responded the next day and she was exactly who I needed. And, you know, we had our first meeting and as I'm, you know, like, <gasps> and then, and I don't know, and I'm trying to figure out, da, 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 and, you know, blah, blah, blah. she was like, you know, take a deep breath. Yep. You're, you're doing fine. You're on the right track. You know, you found me for a reason. I'm going to help you get a few more things formalized, but you're doing what you need to be doing. And so all of those things are what helped to push us to where we are today. Starting with Aubrey saying, we can afford office space. Yeah. (laughs) Shout out to Aubrey. I'm sure she was looking around (laughs) like, can we also move out of your living room? Like, I'm sure she was low-key saying, like, I'm kind of tired. She was. She totally was. I'm tired of coming to your apartment. <laughs> but um, what were you looking for in a business coach? When you say hold my hand, like, what is it about having a business coach? Because that term is a little bit... um. It's hard to understand these days. There's so many different kinds of business coaches. So I want you to explain what people should be looking for in a business coach, what you were looking for that might help someone else. There are so many business coaches out here today. Yeah. And what I was wary of and had fallen prey to at different points in time were people who held themselves out as experts but really we're not like, how can you be a product based business expert, but you've never sold a product. And at the time there were lots of people who were holding themselves out as experts, but really were more focused on service-based businesses. So what I was looking for was someone who had a product business or had had one who 
could help me get to the next level. I had figured out how to get stuff manufactured in the US. I was comfortable with that. I needed expertise on dealing with people in China and what is that like? And what are those, how do you build those relationships when you've got cultural barriers, language barriers, and distance barriers? Yes. I was looking for someone who had time because I I needed some one-on-one. So I wanted someone who had time to sit down with me and help me think through where I was, but also help me think about the future and what that could be for my company. And, And by the future, it was everything from thinking about what my mix should be. You know, should I continue to do custom work? Should I let go of the wholesale and just focus on D2C? Should I add the wholesale in? And if I do, how much of my business should be focused on that? And when we're talking about wholesale, what does that mean? Should I be focused on the small mom and pop? Should I be focused on the bigger companies, their dot coms, these different marketplaces? Like I really just wanted someone who had the knowledge and skill set to be able to help me navigate that sort of critical 18 months I was in where I was hoping to turn the corner, but didn't have a roadmap to do so. I was looking for someone to provide me with a roadmap and then help kind of, you know, be my co-pilot, if you will. I had accountability partners and that was great. This was a different level of accountability and it was coming from someone who had been there, done that kind of thing. Got it. So that was very helpful for you, I'm assuming. Definitely. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm curious, I know a lot of people lose money in the first few years of their business and side hustle. Um, What was your experience as you were scaling and getting all this inventory on the financial end? Was it profitable, break even, losing money? Well, as I said, when we first started out, inventory wasn't an issue. As we Mm -hmm. kind of segued into this 2.0 version, my goal was just to break even. I just just didn't want to lose money in any major way. I I was, and we we were breaking even. We were doing pretty good. What can become money pits are often things that you think are going to make you money. And by that, I mean, as a product based business, one often gets invited to participate in all kinds of events. Oh, oh, yes. Speak on it. <laughs> <laughs> and when you do these sorts of events, mm-hmm. you have no idea what the return on investment is going to be. Mm-hmm. And so you've got to lay out money to for your booth, you know, just to, to buy the space. Then you got to build the booth out. And then you have to have the product for the booth, but you don't know how much product to have because you don't know what the traffic is going to be like. Mm -hmm. And then you've got to have people work the booth. And then if the event is in a different city, you've got to get yourself and your team or find people in that city to work. So I quickly learned that those were money pits Mm. and I really needed to think about what sorts of events were going to make sense for me mm-hmm. and how I was going to get my return on investment. Yes. And as I began to do those sorts of events, I started to look at those as marketing dollars. Mm-hmm. 
so that I wasn't relying on those events to dramatically impact my bottom line, if you will. So I would say the first time I lost money, like in a way that I didn't expect to lose money was doing a big event. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've been told, oh, you're going to make money. And, you know, (laughs) everybody goes to this girl and, you know, your products, people are going to love them and yada, yada, yada. Yeah. So now we just, we know (laughs) to move those events to the marketing line item. We know to write that off. (laughs) Like, this is what I did (laughs) to build brand awareness. Yes. (laughs) Yes. It's all about brand awareness, right? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And how did you approach marketing, like, in the beginning and in 2.0 land? In the beginning, word of mouth. You know, I knew going back to that that convention, one of the things that I did in addition to walking around with my little bag was I had calling cards made up that were kind of fill in the blank. And I, I probably had 5,000 made. And my best friend and I went to the different hotels for the convention and on every floor by the elevators, you know, where there's often like an occasional table, we just left them and figured people would pick them up and use them. And then the logo was on the back. So that was kind of my first foray into this, a bit of a guerrilla marketing and think, you know, I don't have a lot of money. How, how do I get the word out? So after that, initially it really became word of mouth and then relying on friends and family and some VIP customers that I had never met, but decided they liked our products to become our ambassadors. And then newsletter, I was big on collecting emails and Mm -hmm. sending out a newsletter. And we've done that really since the beginning. And we've got a nice sized email list. And our newsletter is not just about buy our products. Our newsletter is an opportunity to build community. It gives them Mm -hmm. a chance to learn more about me, um, life behind the brand, about the team, life. And, and then of course we sell, but that's not the, the primary focus of the newsletter, if you will. We do events and then of course social media, because social media has just the cheapest, most time consuming way to market your business nowadays. I love that. You know, so- the cheapest, most time consuming. <laughs> It's true. It's true. It's like, oh my gosh, you really have to strategize around that thing because you could just waste so much time and it's going to take a long time anyway to to do all you need to do there, but really got to focus it (laughs) and see what's working so you could do more of that and not just be Mm -hmm. wasting your time. (laughs) So before we jump into the lightning round, I'd love to know how the Walmart partnership came about. Um, did you approach them? Were you approaching big box stores? Did they come to you? Um, they came to me. Love that. Yeah. You know, I, <laughs> I had participated. So here's where participating in these, you know, pop-up events and whatnot, you never know who's walking through. You never know who's looking at, social media and and different websites and what have you. I had participated in a holiday pop-up event and our name and maybe a link to the website was listed on that event's webpage or what have you. 
And at the time, the head of diversity and inclusion or, or supplier, it was supplier diversity, excuse me, for Walmart reached out and said, I saw you, I, I like your website, I like what you're doing, I'd love for you to consider getting onto walmart.com. And I said, oh, yeah, that's great. I, I, don't, I don't really think we're Walmart. I think we're kind of more Target. Oh, and no, was, you did not. No, you did not. I, I did because <laughs> pools, pools and babies. And he said, well... I see what you're saying. Your mm-hmm. price point is a little bit higher than our price point, but consider it. And so he and I, so this is 2019. Mm-hmm. And he and I kept up a dialogue and we did eventually get onto walmart.com. And I sent him, um, we're a paper company. So we send out holiday cards at the end of the year to any and everybody whose path we've come across. Mm -hmm. And every year I sent him a holiday card. At the end of 2020, I sent him a holiday card. Top of 2021, he called and said, hey, I'm glad to see you're still in business. Pandemic, I know has been crazy. It's affected a lot of small businesses. Would you be interested in doing something in store? I see you're still on our, our dot com. And I said, okay, sure. Mm -hmm. And that was how it began. It took a year of planning and it was a heavy, heavy lift. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm so thankful and grateful to have had the experience, but what I didn't know and what folks don't know is that working with a big box as a small business at points it felt virtually impossible. I mean, there was a time when I just wanted to say, you know, thanks, but no thanks, but we figured it out and I'm happy and proud to say that we did it. (laughs) Our stuff sold. We didn't lose any money on it. (laughs) Again, I I went, I went into the mindset as this is marketing, this is marketing dollars, but it, it really did work out well. And we were able to have what they call a sidekick or end cap that was extremely Effie's paper branded. And, and what's um, that? What's the sidekick or end cap? So when you go to a, a Walmart, a Best Buy, a Target, and at the end of the aisle, you see it's usually some kind of cardboard thing um, that's got product stuck in it, and it, yeah. the cardboard is very branded. Yes. And then it's branded, you know, the comp- it's branded with the company stuff and then the product is slotted in there somehow. Uh-huh. So, I mean, I, I didn't even know what that was. I, I learned the terminology. I was able to design ours and have it look exactly the way I wanted to. You know, we, mm-hmm. over the course of the year, we figured out what the products would be. We figured out what the sidekick would look like. We had a hand in the stores they would be located in. So it was a soups to nuts process, but I'm kind of surprised anything else got done in 2021 because (sighs) that was, that was a beast. (laughs) We're a small team and that, and that was all encompassing. And was that the most challenging part, filling the demand? No, the most challenging part was understanding their process. Uh, because as many of these large companies, 
want to work with small businesses, they're, they expect that the small business is going to function exactly as all the other businesses are working with. So they all have their own language. It, it, there are just so many moving pieces to navigate systems, learn mm-hmm. learn how to think the way that they do. And that that was really what was challenging about it. Uh-huh. The actual production, you know, the creation of the products, getting them produced was not. And quite frankly, that was end of 2021 because we had to have everything delivered middle of January, 2022. So mm-hmm. we were also producing when all that crazy supply chain stuff was going on. Uh, and as worried as ooh. I was about that, that was the easy part because I've been dealing with my vendors for a long time now. Mm-hmm. And I knew they would jump through hoops to do the best that they could. Mm-hmm. You know, did they have control over the shipping situation? No, but we backed in enough time that we were hopeful we would yeah. make it and, and we did make it. But but quite frankly, that was the easy part. The hardest Ooh. part was navigating the conversations and the systems with the organization itself. Interesting. All right. Well, that's food for thought, y'all. <laughs> As we aspire for these <laughs> Be careful things. what you wish for. <laughs> Be careful what you wish for. Okay, so now we're going to jump into a quick lightning round. So, you know the deal with the lightning round. Answer the first thing that comes to mind. Number one, what is a top resource or tool that has helped you in your business that you can share with the Side Hustle Pro audience? Dropbox. We have been working remotely because my team folks are in different parts of the country. So we've been working remotely kind of ever since inception and Dropbox makes it easy for everyone to access everything at all times. Number two, who is a non-celebrity Black woman entrepreneur who you admire and would want to switch places with for a day just to get a little glimpse at their day-to-day? I would say Bola Sekundi of Clever Girl Finance. Mm. Oh, yes. I yes. admire her and am so impressed with what she has built and how she has built it. I love the fact that now she is a highly sought after speaker by all sorts of financial institutions looking to align with someone who is working to educate women of color, women and people in general. So I'd, I'd love to be in her shoes for a day to see what that's like. Yes. Thank you for reminding me about Bola. I need to reach out to her. (laughs) Number three, um, what's a non-negotiable part of your day these days? Getting to the gym, working out. My days are often a little bit chaotic. They're rarely the same twice. And nowadays, in addition to doing whatever it is I need to do, I need to be available to those on my team to give them what they need to get their jobs done. So for me, Mm -hmm. going to the gym and working out is the way that I start my day. And I just have time for me to do something that is solely for me, has nothing to do with work Mm -hmm. or my family. Number four, what is a personal trait that has helped you significantly in your business? discipline. I was a competitive figure skater when I was a kid, probably from up until the age of 15. And I had to be at the rink at 6am. 
I am not a morning person. My father would come into my bedroom. We had to leave the house at 5.30. He would come into my bedroom at like 20 after 5, pull the blankets off. I grew up in Michigan. It was freezing cold because <laughs> um, I had to get to the rink and then I had to go to school and then wow. I had to go back to the rink. So that has has stood me well with respect to academics, with respect to practicing law, and certainly with respect to being an entrepreneur and having to self-motivate every day. If I'm not motivated, no one else is going to be motivated. This is my business. And as much as those who work with me and for me may be invested in the business, at the end of the day, it's Mm -hmm. mine. And if I don't set the tone and if I don't get the things done that need to get done, it just doesn't work. And so discipline has certainly helped me with that. And finally, what is your parting advice for fellow women entrepreneurs who want to be their own boss but are worried about losing that steady paycheck? Keep the paycheck as long as you can. And I know from somebody like myself who didn't go the the side hustle route that many of you are currently in, what I can share is that running a business is expensive. And you cannot do it by yourself, whether you are working in your business full-time or working in your business as a side hustle. If you keep your job and bring folks on to help you out in the business, you can use whatever proceeds from the business to help defray the costs of your employees and ensure that you continue to get paid from your day job. Because once you leave your day job, it becomes real. I mean, you heard me say, I didn't want to get off a space because that was just a commitment that kind of made me want to throw up some days. So (laughs) if you can keep it for as long as you can, or maybe, you know, start working part-time or find something, a, a consulting gig, but being your own boss is great. But when you're the boss, you're the boss. And that may mean some days you don't get a paycheck. I mean, that's a reality. So my advice would be stick with it for as long as you can until it absolutely 100% makes sense to walk away. Yep. And with that, where can people connect with you at Effie's Paper after this episode? So you can find us online at effiespaper.com and on all social media, we are at Effie's Paper, E-F-F-I-E-S Paper. All right, guys, there you have it. Thank you so much, Kaylin, for being in the guest chair. And I will talk to you guys next week. Hey, guys, thanks for listening to Side Hustle Pro. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. It helps other side hustlers just like you to find the show. And if you want to hear more from me, you can follow me on Instagram at Side Hustle Pro. Plus, sign up for my six-foot Saturday newsletter at sidehustlepro.co slash newsletter. When you sign up, you will receive weekly nuggets from me, including what I'm up to, personal lessons, and my business tip of the week week. Again, that's sidehustlepro.co slash newsletter to sign up. Talk to you soon.